All right, we're going to go ahead and read the 90th Psalm. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the oldest Psalm in the Bible. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a night, a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like they are like asleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it soon is cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Our sermon today is from Genesis 49. We're almost done with the blessings of Jacob upon his sons. Today is going to be Genesis 49, verses 19 through 21. It's only three verses. It's the blessing upon Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. So beginning in verse 19, we read these words. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now, uh, I see somebody in the back that I haven't seen here before, and I want to note that uh, what we're doing right now is a series of sermons based on Jacob's prophecy uh, over his sons. They're, he's about to die, and he's saying what the future would hold for his sons and their tribes. And each one of these points to Jesus Christ. But each one of these also is something that points to the work of God as written in the heavens, in the constellations. And I've said this week after week, and I want to say it again, that we are not to use the stars or the constellations to determine our future, just as we're not to do it from the Bible, using Bible codes to tell us what we're to do with our lives. These things are here to show us Jesus Christ. So make sure that you understand that distinction. And if anybody's watching on YouTube, I want them to understand that as well. The constellations are real, as we've shown in sermon after sermon. God has placed them there for us, and we see them because he has placed them there but we're not to use them for divination for our own purposes, all right? In the Bible, God records events, especially from the central point of Israel, and in particular from Jerusalem. When directions are noted in the Bible, they're normally from that vantage point. In the same way, when a celestial occurrence is noted, such as the rising of the sun, it is given from, from man's perspective on earth. The sun does not really rise. What's happening is the earth is spinning on its axis, and as the earth turns, the perception is for us as seeing the sun is rising, and even the Bible speaks of that as the sun rises. This, along with many other examples of heavenly occurrences in the Bible, are noted from our perspective on earth. 
A constellation from any other angle at all would not be a constellation as we know it. And yet, God has included constellations in his word, clearly showing us that they have relevance to us from how he has placed them, which is from our vantage point, and it's directed from earth looking upwards. The same is true with the other signs in the heavens as well, which are spoken of in both testaments of the Bible. These are never to be used for divination, and yet God shows us what they are to be used for. It is for an understanding of his workings on our behalf. Again, as we have seen for the last three sermons, we will witness Jacob speaking under the spirit of prophecy, words which point to heavenly signs that God has placed in the sky, all of which is revealed in his plan of redemption, centering on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text verse today comes from the 147th Psalm. It says there, he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. God spoke the universe into existence and by the power of his word, it stood firm. From nothing came all things. In a mere six days, he fashioned every single thing suitable for his highest creation, man, who is a temporal, spiritual being, one intended to fellowship with him in a unique way. But before he made the man, he knew that the man would fall. The spiritual would be lost and man would be separated from him. And so, to show that he has complete control over that state of affairs and that the spiritual side of man would be healed, he placed the stars in the heavens in a way which would show us the entire healing process. And along with that, he slowly revealed himself through his word. As the heavens testified, so his word confirmed. There is a plan, there is hope, and there is redemption, and it is all to be found in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Not a story, not a paragraph, not even a single word in the Bible is without relevance. As we saw in our uh, Bible study this morning, we were talking about the very tense or the uh, whether a word is feminine or masculine can actually have great relevance. Everything in God's word has purpose and all of it, even the smallest letter is there because God placed it there with infinite wisdom and care. And the care is because it reveals to us his entrance into his own creation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The key to understanding where all of human history is heading is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that word again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the blessing upon Gad. This is verse 19. Verse 19 begins with these words, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him. In these three sons today, Jacob will continue to bless the sons of his concubines. Dan was the first. We saw that one last week and he's received his blessing already. Jacob now turns his attention to his seventh born son, Gad. He's the third son born to a concubine and the first that is born to Leah's maidservant, Zilpah. The record of Gad's birth is found in Genesis 30, verses 9 through 11, which said these words. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. The name Gad is a very interesting study, and it's kind of difficult to pin down its exact meaning or what Leah was actually thinking when she named him. It could be, as some scholars speculate, that Leah simply stopped bearing children because Jacob had stopped going into her. If this is the case, then her giving Zilpah to Jacob 
seemed as much of a necessity as what Rachel did because she was barren. She may have been desperate to find the love that had eluded her by having more children through the maidservant. Gad, the name Gad can mean either troop, as in a large group, or it can also mean fortune. If it's a troop, then she was excited about the large family which had come from her, a whole troop. Or if fortune, her exclamation would be that she had good luck in her struggle to find that love and affection that she desired. It seems that either way, the name Gad is a reflection of Leah's sad state. Unlike her other children, she never invoked the name of the Lord when this boy was born. Instead, he was completely left out of the struggle that existed between herself and her sister in either thanks or praise. And now, at the end of Jacob's life, regardless of what Leah was thinking about when Gad was born, either troop or fortune, Jacob ties his name in with the word troop by using the Hebrew word gedud, which is a marauding band. In these words of blessing are found a beautiful threefold alliteration, which is known as a paronomasia. It provides a double play on the name of Gad. Jacob explains these words in Hebrew, Gad, Gedud, Yegudenu. Unfortunately, we lose that in the translation, but there are several translators who have done their very best to keep this amazing, alluring alliteration alive. One translation from Kyle said, Gad, a press presses him, but he presses the heel. Another, the speaker's commentary, translated as, Troops shall troop on him, but he shall troop on their retreat. So you see, they're trying to keep this beautiful alliteration alive. Jacob's prophecy is looking forward to the character of the tribe that will descend from him. They will be warlike. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, uh, it describes them this way. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle who could handle the shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, as were swift as gazelles on the mountains. The reason for Gad being warlike was because of necessity. As a tribe, they actually settled east of the Jordan instead of in the land of Canaan. And because of this, they were exposed to all of these sudden incursions of plunderers and they didn't have any protection of the greater body of Israel, which is something that, as we saw in our prophecy update, is happening right now once again in this same area. In the many conflicts and difficulties recorded in the Bible, they, the Gadites, made war along with other tribes who settled to the east of the Jordan. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says these words, the sons of Reuben, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 valiant men, men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow, and skillful in war, who went to war. They made war with the Hagrites, Yatur, Nafish, and Nodab, and they were helped against them. And the Hagrites were delivered into their hand, and all who were with them, for they cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. Then they took away their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 of their sheep, and 2,000 of their donkeys, also 100,000 of their men. For many fell dead because the war was God's, and they dwelt in their place until the captivity. So you see how this prophecy is being fulfilled literally in the pages of the Bible. And along with these groups, they're noted as fighting against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Arameans. Jacob's prophecy perfectly suits what occurred in the history of Gad. But finally, there was a point where the land of Gad was finally overrun and it was occupied by outsiders. This is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 49. It says, Thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? 
has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in its cities? Despite this exile, Jacob assures them that they would finally overcome as we continue with verse 19. But he shall triumph at last. The Hebrew words are vehu yagud akev, literally, and he presses the heel. It is a symbol of victory, similar to what we see in Joshua chapter 10, where Israel stood in victory over the kings they defeated by placing their feet on the necks of those kings. Here's how it's recorded. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with them, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and they put their feet on their necks. Some scholars then see this as a prophecy to Gad, which was fulfilled at the time of David, King David, when the Moabites and the Ammonites were finally subdued. But this is not correct. Just a minute ago, I read you in Jeremiah that their land was overtaken by the enemy, which was after the time of David. However, just one verse later, the Lord, through Jeremiah, promised that Israel would again assume control of the land someday. This is recorded in the later chapters of the book of Ezekiel, which speak of the future, even to us, where the tribe of Gad is given an inheritance in the land. And Gad is also one of the tribes which is sealed in the book of Revelation chapter 7. Matthew Henry likens this to the cause of God and all of his people in his very poetic way of describing things. If you've ever read Matthew Henry, you know he uses beautiful words. Here's what he says about Gad triumphing at last. The cause of God and his people, though for a time it may seem to be baffled and run down, will be victorious at last. It represents the Christian's conflict. Grace in the soul is often foiled in its conflicts. Troops of corruption overcome it. But the cause is God's, and grace will, in the end, come off conqueror. Yea, more than conqueror. Well, this may be true in a certain sense that we can kind of apply this to our own lives. But the words of Jacob, like all of them thus far, point to the work of Jesus Christ. In Micah chapter 5, the word for troop used right here by Jacob is used again. It concerns the gathering of the Babylonians against Israel. But there in the same passage is also the promise of the coming Messiah. The gathering of the troops beautifully reflects Jacob's words to Gad. It says, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. In the second half of the prophecy, the Hebrew indicated that he will press with his heel. The word for heel in that portion of the verse is used several times in the same construct elsewhere in the Old Testament. One of them is in Genesis 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first hint of the coming Messiah. That's when the Lord spoke to the serpent. He said these words, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Another use of it is in the 41st Psalm when referring to Judas who would betray Jesus. There it says, 
All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The symbolism is perfectly clear. Though the devil struck the heel of the Messiah by having one of his own disciples lift up his heel against him, he prevailed by pressing his own heel to crush the serpent's head. The entire prophecy, though proclaimed over Gad and also fulfilled in him, is ultimately a prophecy of Christ to come. In the witness of the stars, Gad is represented by the sign Pisces, which is the fish. In Hebrew, and this is very interesting with this particular uh, constellation, there's an anagram on the name of Gad. Gad is spelled with the Hebrew letters Gimel Dalet. Reversing those to Dalet Gimel produces the word Dag, or fish, Pisces the fish. The connecting constellations to Pisces are the band, which unites the fish, Andromeda, the chained woman, and Cepheus, the crowned king. The Egyptian called Pisces the fishes of him that cometh. Sounds like Christ, doesn't it? The band specifically means, this band between the fish, means he cometh. And Andromeda is named Set, meaning set up as a queen. E.W. Bollinger notes that this constellation, Pisces the fish, has always, always been interpreted as Israel. However, there are two fish in the constellation. These two fish of Pisces refer with certainty to all of the redeemed of the earth, Jew and Gentile. The picture is clear and it's easily understood from the prophecy given by Jacob. And how interesting it is for us that the symbol of the fish, even from the earliest days of Christianity, has always been the symbol of Christianity. The stars witness to the plan of redemption formulated by God from the very time of creation. Out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from eternity, even from everlasting, as my word does tell. Therefore he shall give them up then, until she who labors has given birth, as my word does foretell. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel." And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. This my spoken word. For now he shall be great, even to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace, the end of sadness, pain, and dearth. Our second thought today, the blessing upon Asher, which is verse 20. Verse 20 begins with, Bread from Asher shall be rich. The next blessing falls to Jacob's eighth-born son, Asher, He's the fourth son born to a concubine and the second born to Leah's maidservant, Silpah. Genesis 30, verses 12 and 13 records Asher's birth. Said there, and Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. There is no dispute at all by any scholar on the meaning of Asher. It means happy. It comes from a verb, which is ashar. It means to be straight or to go straight. For most of us, we tend to like the straight and the quick path to where we're going, whether it's literally or in a project. This is what makes us happy. When an arrow flies straight, it hits its mark. When we put up a wall, we want it to be straight, not crooked. In each of these things, being straight gives us the sense of what is correct and what leads to happiness. Leah was happy at his birth, and she gave the reason by saying, the daughters will call me blessed. As before, she did not mention her husband, nor does she include the Lord in her statement. 
Not much is seen or heard from the tribe of Asher in all of the rest of the Bible, other than some standard genealogies and the like. But there is one calling of Asher, along with other tribes, to go to war in the book of Judges, chapter 6 and 7. And also, after Israel is divided into two nations, 2 Chronicles 30 says that some of the people from Asher came down to Jerusalem at King Hezekiah's request in order to celebrate the Passover and to humble themselves before the Lord. But of the times that Asher is noted in the Bible, the most famous is actually found, believe it or not, in the New Testament, where a woman of very great faith from the tribe of Asher was granted the honor of beholding the Messiah before she died, something that surely made her happy. She's noted in Luke chapter 2, and to honor her, we'll read about that. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. Jacob's prophecy of Asher was fulfilled literally in the land allotment to the tribe when it was granted. It's in the lowlands in an area between Mount Carmel and Tyre, and it is a very fertile and abundant area in both grain and in oil. Verse 20 continues, and he shall yield royal dainties. Because of the rich soil of that area, Asher was certainly fit to provide, as the Hebrew reads, ma'adane melech or the delicacies of a king in a literal translation. In 1 Kings chapter 4, one of the governors appointed under Solomon was from the tribe of Asher, and guess what? His responsibility was to provide food for the king and his household for one month of the year. Thus he perfectly fulfills the prophecy Jacob said over his son. Again, the blessing points to Christ, though, as each one has thus far. Asher's bread shall be rich. This is certainly an allusion to the body of Jesus Christ. His words indicate that his body is the richest of all breads. In John 6:35, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In John 6:41, he then spoke, saying, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And then repeating himself and expanding on that, he says this in John 6:51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. In the second half of the verse, it says, he shall yield royal dainties. The word dainties is from the same root as the word eden, which is used in the 36th Psalm, speaking of the river of pleasures, which is a picture of water flowing from the royal throne of God in Jerusalem. Here's what it says. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. That word. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Though the blessing is upon Asher and his tribe, it ultimately looks forward to what is realized in the coming Messiah. Even the name of Asher, which comes from that verb I said, Ashar. As I said, it means to go straight. Now, if, of the God of Israel, in the 72nd Psalm, we read this. His name shall endure forever. 
His name shall continue as long as the sun, and the men shall be blessed in him, and all nations shall call him blessed. That word right there. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. In the witness of the stars, Asher, whose bread is rich, is represented by Virgo, who is uh, holding a full ear of wheat from which bread is derived. The three accompanying constellations are Coma, which is the desired, Centaurus, the centaur with two natures, holding a spear and piercing a victim, and Boots, which is a man walking bearing a branch called Arcturus, which is actually recorded in the Bible. Each of them specifically points to the work of Christ in the history of redemption, and each are well detailed by E.W. Bollinger in his marvelous work, The Witness of the Stars. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust in you. Under the shadow of your wings and guided by your rod, to you alone are all our praises due. We are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light eternal, without borders or measures. To you we look, and our hope is in your gospel story only to you who does such wondrous things. And let the whole earth be filled with your glory as we behold the unfolding of your counselings. Our third thought today, the blessing upon Naphtali. This is verse 21. Naphtali is a deer let loose. Oh, I love that symbolism. It's just so, so full and so rich. The final blessing upon the son of a maidservant falls to Jacob's sixth-born son, Naphtali. He is the second son born to a concubine and the second born to Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. The record of Naphtali's birth is, a birth is found in uh, Genesis 30, verses 7 and 8. And Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed, I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. The meaning of Naphtali is not as easy to determine as some of the others. Naphtali means one of two things, either my wrestling or my twisting. If it is wrestling, then it's referring to the struggle that Rachel felt she was in with her sister Leah, one of being the preeminent wife of Jacob. If so, her exclamation at his birth is correct. With great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I've prevailed. They were in a battle and now she's on top. But the name Naphtali comes from the word patal, which means to twist. And so one translator translates it, by the twistings of God, I am entwisted with my sister. The difference in translation is very important because in the first, it is her struggle against her sister and she has prevailed. But in the second, it is God's designs that have allowed her to participate in building the family, which previously only was by her sister. If the first translation is correct, it's showing an arrogance and condemning her sister even after God had been gracious to her through children. If it's the second, then she was showing gratitude for, to God for allowing her to be included in his plans as he built up Jacob's home. As you can see, differences in translations make a giant difference. They really do matter. But whichever is correct for the naming of him at birth, Jacob's blessing upon him sets him free. Instead of being caught in a wrestling or in a twisting, Jacob says that Naphtali is a deer let loose. In other words, he isn't pursued by hunters. He isn't caged up in a pen. Naphtali is free to roam and to feed upon any pastures that he desires. Again, like his brother, 
there is not a lot concerning Naphtali in the Bible. In Judges chapter 5, they're noted along with Zebulun for jeopardizing their lives in a time of need to help in a great battle. They did the same during another battle in Judges 6 and 7. And later in 1 Kings chapter 7, a craftsman named Huram, or some people call him Hiram, his mother was from the tribe of Naphtali. He was hired by Solomon and he cast all of the main implements of the temple in Jerusalem for Solomon. Verse 21 finishes with these words. He uses beautiful words. Whatever the connection to the future of Naphtali that this verse is pointing to, the Bible doesn't make any direct reference to it. And because of this, it is more than likely a prophecy specifically speaking about the ministry of the Lord and only generally concerning the people of, Na of Naphtali. Again, as before, the words were given by the Spirit of God through Jacob, and they ultimately po point to Christ. The work of God in Christ is what sets a man free. Using the same symbolism of the deer, we read this about the Lord in the 18th Psalm. It says, he makes my feet like the feet of deer, and he sets my, me on high places. It is the Lord who sets the deer free and allows him to run in open places. And in Jacob saying that Naphtali uses beautiful words, there is nothing that could be more appropriately said about the words of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel, unlike any other power in human history, has been displayed more through the use of beautiful words than by any display of force. The land of Naphtali ran all along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was from there that the sweet voice of the Lord Jesus most strikingly went out. As John Gill notes concerning this verse, listen to what he says about what Jacob prophesied. Galileans were swift to obey his call and left all and followed him and were sent out by him to preach his gospel. And both he and they may be said to give goodly words as the doctrines of the gospel are, words of grace, truth, and life, wholesome, comfortable, pleasant, and delightful, good tidings of good things, of peace, pardon, righteousness, salvation, and eternal life by Christ. And the inhabitants of this country in Christ's time were swift to run after him, just like that deer, and hear him. They panted after him as the heart after the water brooks, and both received and gave out the goodly words of the gospel and were made free thereby. And so like a hind let loose, the perfect symbolism of what Jacob just said. It is to this group of people, along with Zebulun, that Isaiah made his prophecy of the great light which would fall upon the land, which we read every Christmas. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Matthew used this exact verse from Isaiah to show us that it was fulfilled in its entirety in the Lord Jesus. Certainly every word of the prophecy points to the one who spoke it through the breath of his dying servant, Jacob. In the witness of the stars, Naphtali is revealed by a play on his name, Naphtali. It is used to form the word Tale, which is a ram or a lamb, thus Aries. The three conjoining constellations of Aries are Cassiopeia, the enthroned woman, Cetus, the sea monster, and Perseus, the breaker. For those familiar with all of the Bible, from this point on, the imagery, especially of the Lamb, is everywhere pointing to Jesus Christ. The other conjoining constellations are very well described by Bollinger in his book, 
and they point to the work of the Messiah in defeating the devil and leading the people in a great procession. Particularly exceptional, though, is the connection to Perseus, the breaker. This is the work of Christ perfectly revealed in the words of Micah, which say this, the one who breaks, that word right there, open, will come up before them. They will break out, that word again, pass through the gate and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. The Hebrew name of Perseus is from the Hebrew name Perez, and it's where the Greek name actually comes from. This is the same word used to describe the one who breaks forth in that passage from Micah. As you can see again, as we have seen in every blessing so far, Jesus is perfectly and exactingly revealed in the words of Jacob to his sons. And likewise, the stars themselves witness to the splendor of what God has done, what God is doing, and what he will complete in and through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As David says in the 19th Psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Everything that God has revealed to us is to show us his great love for us. Were it not so, he wouldn't have taken the time to give us his plan in the heavens. He wouldn't have given his word for our guide, and he would not have given his son, our Lord, for our redemption. This is how much God loves us, and it is certain, it is absolutely certain, that he desires us to know him personally. And the only way that we can do that is if we call on Jesus Christ and come to him through his word. If you have never received this greatest gift of all, please give me just another minute to tell you how you too can share in the love of God, which is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Bible says that God created us. I'm not an evolutionist because that just doesn't make any sense. God created us. And he knew in advance when he created us that we would turn our backs on him and we would disobey him. And when that happened, it made a rift between us. God said to Adam, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And yet Adam lived 930 years afterward. So the death he was speaking of must be a spiritual death. And this is what the Bible proclaims from that point on. Everything pointing to the healing of the spiritual wound between us and God. He's infinite, we're finite, and there's no bridge, no possible bridge between us unless he takes the action himself. And so he entered into the stream of humanity, born of a woman, but not born of a man. So he didn't inherit the sin. He was perfectly sinless when he was born. And he lived perfectly sinless as the gospel records record, showing us that he was born without sin, he lived without sin, therefore he died without sin. And by doing that, he gives us an opportunity to call on him in his sinless state and have our sins washed away. The substitution, which is prefigured in the Old Testament, sacrificing a lamb on behalf of the individual, they confess their hands over that lamb and then they'd slaughter it, say, I transfer my sin to this lamb. But that was only a temporary measure. The Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It was only given to the people of Israel to lead them to their understanding that they need the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And yes, he did come, and he did give up his life for us. The Bible says that all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. It also says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we have to do is call on him and ask him to just cleanse us of our sins. Then we move from our fallen father Adam over to Jesus Christ, and our sin is imputed to his cross. His death was sufficient to take care of everything that we've done wrong. 
Bible says how to do it. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. It's that simple. And yet it's an awful difficult thing to do. It took me much of my life before I realized that I actually have to let go of myself, stop trying to earn God's favor, and just trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what you need to do. And it's very simple. Just call on the name of the Lord. He will save you. He'll give you eternal life. If you've never done it, do it today, please. Our closing verse today comes from the 119th Psalm. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. Next week is Genesis 49, 22 through 26. It's the blessing upon Joseph. That'll be our last blessing of Jacob. We're almost done with Genesis, and then we're going to go into a book of the Bible that is so beautiful that it makes me cry just reading it. And there are so many treasures hidden in it. It, It's a very short book. It won't take long to get through it, but it'll be the most wonderful journey you've ever gone on, I assure you. That's coming up soon. We have a few more chapters in uh, 127. We have four more sermons in Genesis. Next week will be our 127th Genesis sermon. I'll tell you this before we have our poem today, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. And please remember to keep the people that aren't here in prayer, especially Zach who's down in the DR, just so that he doesn't catch this virus and have to face that. Our poem today is entitled Triumph, Royal Bread, and Beautiful Words. Jacob blessed his sons before he died. Three of them were Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. By these precious words, we are notified of a portion of God's plan of redemption in history. Upon these three, these words he did pronounce, prophecies of things to come which God's Spirit did announce. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Just three verses so shortened to the point, and yet filled with treasures immeasurable. Upon the dying lips of Jacob he did anoint pictures of Christ which are ascertainable. Such wisdom and splendor revealed in God's word, hints of the future, not discernible in nature alone. Words which tell us of our precious Lord, of his life and of his death, which for our sins do atone. The glory of God is written in the stars above and is explained so carefully in his precious book. There we see the plan, the life, the love. And so let our eyes to it every day. Take a look. Be not weary and skip over this pleasure. In it you will find the greatest of treasure. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look into your word. And even though these blessings are a little hard to put into something we can directly apply to our life. At least we can see Jesus in them. And if nothing else puts us on a sure footing in our understanding of you, it's to know that Jesus is seen everywhere in the pages of the Bible. And then he's revealed in the Gospels and he's explained all through the New Testament the great work that you did for us, even when we turned our back on you. Lord, help us to always be obedient to you, to revere your word, to honor the Son and just to tell other people about it, about this wonderful gospel message which you have given us. Lord, each person here, I'd ask that you bless them abundantly, help their hearts to be happy and to just be overflowing with joy. And uh, we'll be sure to give you praise and honor and glory as we take our communion. We'll think on you and the uh, crucifixion. And in the week ahead, help us just to remember to continue to think on you and to think on you and to just trust you with every step of our lives. We love you and we praise you and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
we get the words for the Lord's Supper directly out of the Bible. They come from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there Paul writes these words to us. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Thank you for the gift of your son, Lord. Thank you for this table that we are allowed to participate in. Thank you. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this table and to share in this most sacred of all rituals. And we will do our best to honor you by proclaiming his death until he comes again. And we wait for that day. I know each heart here that has called on Jesus Christ is just in anticipation of seeing his beautiful face and hearing that sweet voice which went out along the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Those people were so blessed to hear that and they didn't even know it. Help us to be responsive and hear that word and to receive it into our lives and then to tell others about it before that day comes when it'll be too late. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We love you. 
We praise you, and we do so in his name. Amen.